In Her Words is a sub-series from Something Private, featuring lesser-known stories of women who've survived unspeakable pains and triumphed. Women who succeed despite and against all odds. This is their story. So October 10th is World Mental Health Day, and it's really important to us at Something Private. We've done a couple of episodes previously on mental health awareness, one with a lovely psychiatrist named Dr. Kamini at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic this year. And Dr. Kamini wisely told us that self-care is really important and it is whatever you define it to be. Today, we speak with a young woman named Belle who shares her experience living in a psychiatric ward for two weeks. The kicker, she voluntarily admitted herself in hopes of getting better. Something Belle said that really resonated with me in this particular episode is that you don't have to wait until your mental health deteriorates before you seek help. It's good to have good mental health all the time. And I think I'm, I feel very guilty of this because I often overwork myself and I harbour a lot of guilt around seeking help because, you know, I think I'm this strong, independent thing who can handle everything on her own. But I think listening to Belle's story was a really good reminder for me and I hope that when you guys listen to this episode that it will be a good reminder for you as well. Here's Belle's story. Hi everyone, I'm Belle. I'm 24 this year. So I just came back from Australia not too long ago. I studied there for four years. So I was studying occupational therapy and I'm currently working in a hospital as an occupational therapist. So an OT usually helps people with an injury, an illness, or those who have a disability to become independent in their daily activities again. So be it by using equipment, be it by adapting their activity or their environment. Mm. So after struggling with anxiety and depression for a while as a new grad occupational therapist, I was admitted to a hospital to stay in a psychiatric ward for two weeks. So when I first started my new job, I was very nervous. I had difficulty sleeping, but everyone told me it would go away because, you know, it's normal to feel anxious about being in a new environment, meeting new people, and especially for a foreign grad, there will normally be a culture shock at first. So I thought it would go away, but I didn't. Instead, the symptoms just became worse. So other than just having difficulty sleeping, I was also quite breathless. I started to have gastric issues as well, cramps. I felt very nauseous in the morning. I started to even have panic attacks. It could be no reason at all. I'd just be lying in bed and then I was feel very uncontrollably fearful. Just felt like I was going to die. Can't breathe. Trembling, shaking, perspiring, crying. Initially, I thought the anxiety was normal. Mm. So feeling breathless or, you know, just feeling fearful about the day in general. But I think I started to realise that it was becoming more and more unhealthy when I started to become a lot more depressed. So I was a lot more withdrawn. I didn't want to see my friends anymore. I didn't even want to do the things I like to do anymore. So I started to rely on more of, I guess, my immediate family because I didn't want to go out. My sister, and I started to rely a lot on my boyfriend as well. He had to come over every day after work just to make sure I feel more comforted after a long day at work. I just wanted to come home, see my boyfriend sitting there waiting for me. Mm-hmm. He didn't even have to say anything. Um, And it started during circuit breaker as well. And with circuit breaker comes with a lot of changes, mm-hmm. not being able to go out at all. And then I even had him live with me for a while during that whole period. So then I became very, very reliant. Because I was feeling more and more unwell, I took a lot of MCs as well. Mm-hmm. So then it felt like I should be at home and I shouldn't go to work. Mm. Yeah, so that's how I started to max out my MCs and my leaves. Yeah, and it became very unhealthy because then 
the only thing I can think of is just spending time with him and not thinking about work at all. So just escaping the problem altogether. Even the thought of him going home for dinner wasn't an option. The moment he stepped out the door, I'll be crying. Mm. I'll be texting him non-stop. I'll be calling him and crying on the phone saying, no, I feel like dying. I feel very depressed. I can't function without you. Can you can you please come back? I started to see how it impacted him negatively as well. So, you know, I break down so often, but then to see him break down and be a lot more teary, emotional, crying as well, then I realized that, you know, I really need to do something because otherwise we're just, I'll just be dragging him down as well. Because I was feeling very, very suicidal and I can get quite specific and detailed as to what I want to do. You know? mm. So I think that's quite, can be very scary for the person listening. Yeah, I think my sister overheard our conversation and she said, Zetzai, you really need to stop. Look what you're doing to him. So with that, I think we knew that I needed to speak to someone who's more trained. At the point of time, I was very fearful and very, very tired of speaking to people and explaining. So again, I was very lucky that my sister and my boyfriend, they were both very supportive and they were the ones that did their Googling and they were the ones that called the FSC and my boyfriend was the one that had to describe the whole situation to the person mm. with me just sitting next to him. Mm. Yeah. Because I, I was very fearful. I didn't want to share at all. So I went to speak to the counsellor at the FSC and because it was a circuit breaker, it was more of a phone call and she taught me techniques like deep breathing or like trying to distance yourself from your thoughts. It didn't change the fact that I was still having a lot of panic attacks. I really can't think straight when I'm in that state. Like, I'm just so overwhelmed that I can't start doing my deep breathing and counting, you know. Just like rolling on the floor crying. So she then recommended me to see a doctor, get a referral to see a psychiatrist. And that's what I did. But the wait times were quite long. So during then, about one to two months, I was still talking to her. They managed to push the appointment forward, I think by a month, Mm. because it was getting quite urgent. Mm. I was really getting worse. So they called them up and then I went to see the psychiatrist there and um, was crying uncontrollably. And I think my behavior then was already quite evident that I was very, very depressed. Mm. She asked me then if I wanted to be admitted. But I said no. Mm. Because she said if you be admitted, then you have no phones and we're not sure if your family can visit or your boyfriend can visit because it's COVID. So I said, no, I I don't want. She diagnosed me with anxiety and depression and she gave me some medications. And then she advised my counsellor and my family members to just watch out. And if I were to have any uh, worsening symptoms or if I became very suicidal, then to bring me to the A&E. So I went home, I took my medications every day. But I was still very anxious. I think there's a limit to how effective the medications can be. Especially towards, because if I took it every night, then towards the evening, evening, then the symptoms will come back. Mm. Um, And when you first take the medications, actually there are a lot of side effects as well. So the first few days of taking my medications, um, I was very, very dizzy and I was very drowsy. I couldn't even get out of it. Did you know that actually sometimes taking antidepressants can make you feel more depressed first before feeling better. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Well. Yeah, so until I experienced it for myself and my friend who works in the mental health industry, she told me. So I was actually a lot more depressed afterwards 
And that was when I really didn't want to get out of the bed. I needed my boyfriend to physically pull me out to get some breakfast. Yeah, because I had no appetite. Yeah. So after that, I tried to go back to work. But the symptoms were still there. And I think another major change was that because at first, initially, my boyfriend was still looking for a job. So, so he was there most of the time. But then he had to move out. He had to leave. And you know, I was still so overly reliant on him. So that was a very, very big change for me that I couldn't handle. The very first day of his, his first day of work, and then I broke down. So even walking towards the hospital, I was already crying. And then I walked straight into the toilet and I stayed there for an hour. Even after work started, I texted my colleague and I think she told my supervisor. So she had to physically go to the toilet and get me out. And I was still crying nonstop. So as I was crying, she asked me, so was I feeling very suicidal? And I told her I was. And that's when I think she said that she didn't feel safe for me to go home myself. I had to call my sister to come down, pick me up. My workplace supervisor told my sister to bring me to in. Um, they got the psychiatrist to come down to see me. And she then offered me again the option of staying in the psychiatric ward. And I said yes. So I live in the East. Everyone was asking me why I went all the way to NUH for my treatment. But I think my boyfriend and my sister did some Googling. And they had a lot of good reviews from NUH. So I went there. And when I went in, I was very fearful. Because, you know, I watched a lot of movies and then they paint a very bad picture of how psychiatric wards are like people banging their heads on the wall or screaming but you could tell that that look that people give you when you when you tell them you're in ward 33 because that was the ward I was in um they didn't allow me to walk in they had to push me in on a wheelchair yeah so they pushed me in and because I was on suicide watch I couldn't even go to the toilet by myself when I went to pee the nurse had to stay outside with the door slightly ajar it was very awkward <laughs> Interesting. And being in a ward means following their rules. So apart from not having access to my phone, even having your family members like pass you their phone for video calls or what, it's not allowed. And you're not allowed to leave the ward as well because I think also because of the COVID situation, you don't allow patients to go out. And of course, the usual rules like lights out by thing nine thirty. So you can only use the ward phones from nine to nine. You know that even the toilets, they don't have mirrors because they're afraid that people might break it, break it and cut themselves. And if there is, uh, it's actually made out of metal. You have to keep all your belongings, even your skincare, soap, you have to keep it with them and you have to request for it every time you want to shower. Like they laid out the terms from the start for you, right? And they don't seem like entirely like favourable. Like mm. It does feel as if you're trapped in that space. It does, but I guess um, it, was a good, it was a good thing that I admitted myself. Um, it can be a very safe respite for you. So having that space away from everyone, not having to go to work, sometimes going home can be a source of stress for you. So actually, I think that the hospital work can also be a really safe space for you, away from all your stresses. Mm. The first few days was, were very difficult because as usual, I was... Very, very anxious the moment I was left alone. I was crying and I called my sister and said, get me out of here, this is a prison. And then the nurses tried to calm me down and say, girl, this is not a prison. I'm like, this is worse than a prison. I have to pay to be treated like a prisoner. <laughs> yeah, so they're like, oh, can I give you some medications to calm you down? And then 
if you want to leave, you can because this is a voluntary admission. Mm. For me, I think the main thing was being in patient pajamas. It was a very new experience because you know I've I've been a healthcare professional. I've been working with patients, but I think being a patient myself was a very different experience. I think wearing the uniform, the pajamas every day, constantly reminded me that I was there for treatment, and that's when I felt like it was safe because I couldn't kill myself. Mm. So I could only become stronger. Mm. It was so difficult, and I really wanted to kill myself, but because I couldn't, I could only become more resilient. Mm. So only when I was admitted to the hospital ward, then they kind of revised my diagnosis to adjustment adjustment disorder, and that's actually just so from anxiety and depression. They kind of like made it more specific to adjustment disorder, and I haven't heard of that before. And I think it's just like a it's supposed to only last for about six months. Usually after a major change in your life, like there's this very abnormal, excessive response to it, and it can come in a form of symptoms that are like anxiety and depression. Mm. Yeah, and they kind of use the addiction model to describe my behavior. It was very strange at first. Yeah, I told the doctor, and suddenly he had this like eureka moment. So I said, you know, I can't. It doesn't make me feel better when I speak to him on the phone or when I see him over video call. I need him to be here. I just need his physical presence. When he talks to me, I don't feel better. And he was like, "Let's all start using the addiction model." Then he started telling all the other doctors. Then I was like, "What is going on?" He was like, "Oh, like it so happens I'm the addiction specialist and um." I'm going to be very blunt. It seems that as though you're addicted to him, like he's a substance, drug, or a drink that you can go to when you feel stressed. Mm. So when I start feeling very anxious, I'll cling onto him like a koala. So, you know, then he sort of becomes more of a physical entity than a person. Mm. I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds terrible, but now it makes a lot of sense. So when he leaves, I start to have withdrawal symptoms and... <laughs> then that's why you can see me crying, shaking, all this. It really looks as though I'm a drug addict, you know, mm. not giving my drug. Mm. We're taking a short break. Something Private is a podcast produced by WeFM. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to get notified the second a new episode drops every Tuesday. This episode was made in commemoration of World Mental Health Day on October 10th. I want to know how you guys are taking care of your mental health this year with all that's been going on. Have you been honest with yourself? Good to yourself. Let me know. Drop me a message on Instagram at somethingprivatepod, that's somethingprivatepod, P-O-D, or email me at nicole at somethingprivate.fm. Now back to the episode. Cold turkey treatment is actually very effective for drug addicts. <laughs> it was very difficult, but then I started to see some progress. So my counsellor actually came all the way from the FSC to NUH to speak to me as well. She said, you know, that it's okay to still break down sometimes. You have to be kinder to yourself and see, actually see the progress that you have been making. So then I realized, actually, yeah, it's, it's true there's some progress. I started having lesser panic attacks. Mm. I didn't feel so breathless anymore. So she said it was like taking two steps forward, one step back. You're still making progress at the end of the day and you have to praise yourself for that. Be kinder to yourself in that sense. 
Yeah, so acknowledge any progress that you're making. The doctors actually asked me in their very first interview, so how will you describe yourself? Then I was like, what kind of question is that? Um, then I said before this all started, I would say that I'm quite an independent person because, you know, I chose to go to Perth because I knew that lesser Singaporeans were going there for the occupational therapy course. I wanted to be away from Singapore. Then I started to think when I was in Australia, I also had to manage stress on my own. So what did I do? I wrote and typed a lot when I was feeling lonely or feeling stressed. And that very night when I was left alone after my family left at nine, um, after sniffing and crying and whatnot, then yeah, I got to the counter and I asked for a stack of paper and I started writing and I kept writing until the medications made me feel drowsy. And I started to feel like, hey, actually... Writing is the only way I can feel comfortable with being... And writing really clears your mind. Mm. Puts you into perspective. So that was what I did for the rest of my stay. Um, I think the main takeaway from that would be that then I could set clearer boundaries for myself and for for my boyfriend as well. Because I think the boundaries became very blur mm. after a while, especially when he started to move in with me. Yeah, you know, what, that was when I realised that you really need to know what you can and cannot control. So I really wrote down things that you can control. You can be prepared for the week to come. So you can, you know, make sure that whatever you can prepare for, you do so. Like, you know, for my work, then make sure that I prepare my clothes and I make sure that I try not to use my phone too much before I sleep. You can prepare for a week that you can look forward to. So, you know, insert days where you're going to meet your friends for dinner or go for a movie, things that you look forward to. And... Acknowledge things that you cannot control. So I guess the source of my anxiety was because I felt so out of control all the time. I was so scared of the things that I cannot be certain about. So I really wrote down things that I cannot control, mm. which is external circumstances like COVID, the culture, the environment, the rules, even the medication side effects. Um, I guess other people's reactions and expectations. But what you can control is your own expectations. Mm and your own uh, behavior. So I told myself, you know, you can be patient, you can be understanding, you can be supportive. And I also wrote down things, what people can tell me when I'm feeling very overwhelmed. So I wrote down, and I actually gave it to my girlfriend. And one day when I was feeling very distressed, I actually handed him the paper and I said, can you just read this? Read it back to me. Mm. Felt very awkward at first, but I wrote things like, please don't offer me solutions. Like, can you show me some empathy? Mm. Can you name and acknowledge my emotions? Can you say something like, you know, I know it has been very difficult for you. You must be feeling very anxious or angry because of so-and-so. And then you insert the reason to show that you have been paying attention. Mm. So I think that really makes the person feel hurt and feel like, you know, their experiences are valid. Mm. Let's talk a bit about after you were completed your psychiatric stay and then you reintegrated back into your life. How was that transition like for you and I guess like how are you coping now? Actually, the medical team suggested at least two weeks. So it can be up to a month. Mm. It can be up to three months. Usually for addiction, you need at least three months to get better. Mm. But I think by the End of two weeks, I was like, I have had enough here. I'm going to leave. going <laughs> to spread my wings and fly away. Because <laughs> I, I, I guess I started to really understand the plan and I felt that there wasn't a need for me to be in the world anymore. 
I could just do that outside with the help of my friends and family. After writing down my plans and how I'm going to, you know, prepare for the week to come, I showed the doctor the list of all the things that I wrote for myself. And then I said, I want to go home today. <laughs> and he said, yes, okay. Yeah, I think you've shown me that you are ready to go home. I want to know, like, so from then on, after that stay, until now, how has, like, the journey been like for you? I guess I want to emphasize that recovery is not a one-way street. It's, it's definitely going to be a very long and arduous journey. There, there are going to be many ups and downs. I think even now, I would tell people that uh, I don't think I'm 100% recovered yet. There are still days where I break down and I feel very suicidal. So I guess you really need to pace yourself and have more realistic expectations of yourself. Like for me, I think they describe me to have like a very anxious and rigid personality. Mm. I can be quite a perfectionist mm. and I don't allow room for mistakes. And that can really create a lot of unnecessary stress for, for myself. So... I have gone back to work, but I've only gone back part-time. So I guess really slowly easing yourself back to a healthier routine would be very helpful. And keep yourself busy with things that you like to do. Mm. Of course, don't tire yourself out. But what I did while I was still on leave, so even after I was um, discharged, I was still on leave for about two weeks. I kept myself busy, met up with friends. I joined a gym membership. I went for F45 like every day. Um... I even tried painting with my mom. So I guess like reconnecting with the things that I like to do and reconnecting with my friends and family. I was very hesitant to start part-time work because then I'll be thinking, oh no, my pay is going to be sliced in half, you know. Then what about my plans for, you know, getting a house or this? Savings are going to take a toll. And even the thoughts of, you know, going for medical visits, they're also going to cost. But yeah, I realized that these are just important steps that I need to take to become better. And I went, when I do become better again, then all this will be worth it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I once spoke to a psychiatrist who, who said um, quite accurately that, you know, people are willing to pay like $200 for like a retail session, but like they aren't willing to pay that same amount of money to seek help for like their mental health. Mm. Right. So I want to know like what, First of all, like, what is your take on that? Second of all, like, how would you encourage, I guess, like, somebody in the same shoes mm. to maybe spend that $200 be more wisely, you know? Okay. Mental health is definitely a spectrum. Mm. Like, you can be, you, have an, you can have good mental health and you can be mentally ill. And that's, I would say, at the extreme end. The moment if you're struggling with something and you feel anxious, it's really okay to seek help then. Yeah, you don't have to go straight to a psychiatrist if you think that that's too much. Yeah, it's always an option for you to reach out to other forms of support. Mm. And just like, you know that there's a help board called Bell as well that actually you can just type to. You don't even have to call. So some people find that they don't like calls. They don't like speaking to somebody. Yeah, You can even just type. Yeah, you, you just go Google Bell the help board and then uh, you can actually type and share and then they will offer you um, services that you can access based on what you need. Mm. Um, and if you don't mind calling somebody because some people feel more comfortable speaking, speaking to a stranger because then they won't feel judged. Mm. Then I guess there are helplines out there as well that you can reach out to. And yeah, so I guess you can always take baby steps. 
the moment you feel like whatever you're doing is not enough, then you just have to try something different. Mm. Sometimes speaking to a friend is good enough. Mm. Sometimes trying something new is good enough. Yeah, you just have to try and try until you f- you find that you're in a better state, mm. better and healthier state. Mm. What I wanted to share was also not just in a perspective of a person that is struggling with anxiety and depression and wants to seek help, but also to reach out to people who who may know people who are struggling with some hardships or struggling with their mental health. You know, I just really want to like have a shout out to them and say like, you know, thank you so much for for being there. Um, it's very very important that there's someone like you who cares for them, and it's not going to be easy, but if you know and care for someone like that, please don't give up on them. Mm. Yeah, it will be very draining and tiring for sure, but it is very helpful to know that there will be someone who will be there regardless of what happens. This episode is intended to come out in conjunction with World Mental Health Day, right? Mm-hmm. Is there like a something special that you like to see? In commemoration of Mental Health Day, I think uh, what I want to share is that you don't have to be mentally unwell to seek help. Mm. Yeah, as long as you're struggling with something. I think we have to really normalize the idea of speaking to someone, speaking to a therapist. Yeah, sometimes that can be a weekly thing if you can afford to actually just organize your thoughts and to kind of have a third-person perspective as to what happened and to have a better relationship with yourself in general. Mm. So the idea of maintaining mental health and well-being should be more of a focus. Yeah, rather than having the idea that you have to be unwell before you seek help. You can only be healthy before you can work. Mm. Yeah, so if you're constantly working to the point of burnout, you're going to spend a lot more time and money than to get back to your good health. Mm. So just remember, remember to take care of yourself even while you're working and studying right now thanks for tuning in to this week's episode if you guys liked our podcast please subscribe to us on all the various podcasting platforms and share us with your friends family and loved ones it will do us a solid hope you guys have been enjoying this particular series in her words where we feature you know tough stories from women who are just like you and me but have lived through experiences that were I would say harder than most we've gone through. Um, so yeah, if you guys have a particular individual you'd like me to feature or talk to, or if you want to share with me anything at all, please reach out to me on Instagram at somethingprivatepod, or via email and the code at somethingprivate.fm. Always love to hear from you guys. See you guys next week.